Good morning. It's, um, it's a great pleasure to be here this morning. My guess is that um, many of you may not have seen me before. It's certainly the first time that I've spoken at this service. Uh, but despite this, I feel that I know many people here already. Uh, the truth is, I'm a little bit like a Dennis Thatcher or a Prince Philip. I am just the husband of a famous wife. And so over the last few years, I've got used to being greeted with, ah, you're Pippa's husband, never are you Steve. And in fact, it's normally, you're that lovely Pippa's husband, and very occasionally, you're lovely Pippa's lovely husband. But that one is unusual. Um, I'm therefore absolutely delighted to be here today in, in my own right, even if I do feel a little bit like Dennis Thatcher addressing the Tory party conference. But when preparing this talk, I was reminded of a trip I took when I was at school, when I helped take a group of young boys who would not normally have a summer holiday, and we took them off to a dilapidated farmhouse in North Wales. And I have two very clear memories of this trip. The first one was that we survived the biggest earthquake in Britain since records began, uh, which measured a mighty uh, 5.4 on the Richter scale. I'm sure you can all remember the the story of the Lynn Peninsula earthquake. Um, Maybe not. Um, The damage it caused was not that immense. I think at least one apple rolled off the table and got a bit of a bruise. Um, But the second and frankly far more disturbing experience was my only ever attempt at sea fishing, trying to catch mackerel. Uh, I don't know if any of you have ever tried to do this, especially with a bunch of young boys who, let's say, didn't have the longest of attention spans. But it really is not fun. Uh, It involves sitting in a boat for hours and hours on end in a heavy swell going up and down, up and down endlessly, And all you're doing is holding a piece of string with a hook on it. And nothing else happens. If you're very lucky, a small fish might come along and and, uh, bite the hook. Uh, Needless to say, uh, neither me nor most of the other boys were lucky, and we caught very little. Well, today, as we continue in our summer series of Jesus by the Sea, uh, we're going to look at a fishing parable, but where the fishermen are not using a single hook and a line like me, but are doing something rather more ambitious. They're taking out a very large net to catch as many fish as possible. The parable comes right in the middle of Matthew's Gospel, and as Alex said, it's the last, actually, of seven parables all in a row that Matthew deliberately groups together at this point. And in many ways, they mark a turning point in Matthew's account of Jesus' story. Because after this, Jesus leaves Galilee and begins his long journey towards Jerusalem and ultimately his crucifixion. And the seven parables are grouped together because they all ask, in slightly different ways, much the same question, which is, what will you do with Jesus? And each one is highlighting different challenges and issues. The first four of them are spoken to the crowds Uh, Jesus has now left the speaking just in synagogues and is speaking to a much bigger audience out by the seashores. And as we may remember from some of the other talks we've had here, that when we're talking to the crowds, this does not necessarily just mean people who believe in him and are following him, but Jesus was becoming very big news at this stage, and he attracted all sorts of people who were just coming along for the ride. 
The first of them, the parable of the sower, therefore challenges them about how they respond to him now about what he is saying. Whilst the next three deal in different ways with the change and the growth of the kingdom of God. You see, whilst it may appear to them at that time as small, and the people in it, looking around at the crowds, a somewhat mixed bunch, to say the best of them, the kingdom of Jesus, he is saying, is building. And it will grow and have value and strength and influence far beyond what they currently see. Jesus then leaves the big crowds behind and tells three further parables to the smaller group of his disciples. The first two you may know about the, the, the parable of the hidden treasure and the parable of the pearl are really underlining again the absolute incalculable value of the kingdom of God and that it is worth any sacrifice and it is worth any cost to try and gain it. And the section then ends with today's parable, which we've just heard. And this challenges them, I think, about persevering to the end, to the disciples, and the ultimate decision on what they will, on whether they will become part of that kingdom forever. Now, if you have your Bibles with me, turn, turn with me, please, to page 980 and verse 7, uh, verse 47, I say. And also, if you have your batting order in hand, just have that to one side, and hopefully you can see where we're going. So if we look at the parable of the net again, it says this, Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into a lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore, then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. And this is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous, and throw them into the blazing furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Well, it's it's only five sentences, and it starts quite straightforwardly enough. But it does seem to end in a slightly more difficult and, and depressing manner with all this weeping and gnashing of teeth. And therefore, let's see if we can, if we can make some sense of it this morning. In Jesus' day, there were two types of nets used by fishermen. One was a, a, a casting net, which an individual could use. It was a bell-shaped net and could throw out and try and catch fish. The other is what we may now call a drag net. And it was much, much bigger. Even in Jesus' day, these nets could cover up to one square mile of seawater. A group of fishermen would spread them out between two boats and then drag the net slowly to the shoreline, catching as many fish as they could, fish of every size, big and small, good and bad. Whatever they caught along the way would be dragged to the shore. And only when the net was full and dragged to shore would the fish then be sorted into those fish that were good to eat and those fish which weren't. And Jesus is talking about this kind of fishing in this parable. But as usual with all his stories, he makes a change from the normal course of events. Instead of the sorting being done by the fishermen, it is done by God's angels. And also, instead of it being done today, the sorting will be carried out at the end of the age. In other words, at the point when Jesus returns and God wraps up the universe around us. But one thing does remain the same. 
and that is the sorting will still separate the good from the not so good. Now, in understanding this parable, we, we have to remember that all parables are not straight allegories. They are general illustrations and are often just trying to make one point clearly. We therefore will always stray into dangerous territory if we try and take every little piece of a parable and and align to that some detailed teaching. That is not their purpose. Some, like the parable of the sower, uh, which is is the first of the seven parables in this section, uh, may have several points to them. But most, like this one, are just trying to make one point clearly and firmly. Having said that, of course, and being a good Christian, I still want to make three points out of the sermon because that's what we always try and do. And I've drawn these three points up under three sections. And I'd like to look at, first of all, the fishing, then the sorting, and finally the catch. Now, when we look at the parable, it's it's a little bit unclear who the fishermen are. Are they angels? Are they us? They could even be Jesus. Commentators vary, and therefore I wouldn't put any emphasis on this. But it is clear that the intent of the fishermen is to catch as many and as varied fish as possible. They don't care at this point what the fish look like. They don't care what types of fish they are, they are how big they are, how small they are. They just want to catch them. And unlike me sitting in the Irish Sea with one little line looking for mackerel only, They are after all of the fish. Now, whilst it's not necessarily highlighted here, Jesus does make clear throughout the Gospels that we are called to be fishers of men. And I think that this parable does say something very clearly about how we are to go about that. Now, of course, we all sign up to the theory that the church, that this church, is open to all. No one should be excluded And I'm sure that none of us would ever do anything to stop someone coming to our church. But fishing is not a passive activity. It's not something where we sit and wait for the fish to come to us. It's an active one. We have to go out and do the fishing ourselves. And if I'm honest, the only people I approach when I'm going out fishing, as it were, are people who are a little bit like me. People who are easy to talk to. And I suspect that to many of us today, here today, that we are also a little bit like that. But as I read and prayed about this passage, I felt challenged as to whether I am actively looking to bring all types of people to this church, or just the ones I find it easy to bring. Am I as indiscriminate as the fishermen in terms of colour, background, social standing, I also wondered, what would our church look like? What would we feel about our church if it fully reflected the whole diversity of the community around us? What would this service look like? What would our home group look like? What would connections look like, if that were the case? And how comfortable would I be with that mix? And how active will I be to make that mix the case? Now, this is a big question, and I think there's a challenge for me and possibly for many of us on how prepared we are to do that. But I think it is clear 
that the sort of kingdom that Jesus is building is one where everyone from all backgrounds, of all colours, shapes, sizes, personality types, are, invo- are invited. And as some of you may know, we're, we have a guest Sunday coming up in seven weeks' time on the 4th of October. And wouldn't it be wonderful if on that day we'd managed to invite people who had never been to church before? And not just from our closest friends, but from all parts of our community. Okay, back, back to the parable. And what comes after the fishing is the sorting. Verse 49 says, At the end of the age, the angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous. Now, I'm going to have a look at the impact on that as us as individuals in a moment. But first, I wanted to pull out two important elements of of the process. And that is that the sorting is done then and not now. And it's done by God and not us. I think we suspect sometimes that uh, we like to imagine that the kingdom of God, the creation of his church, of this church, if you like, begins with the separating of the good and the bad, the righteous and the unrighteous, so that he's gathering now all the righteous together. But actually, Jesus makes clear that's not the case. It's the other way around. It ends with the sorting out. If you think about it, it should really be obvious, as we look around us, that the church does not have a monopoly on the good, nor is it excluded from the bad. The church throughout history has, a, has been a pretty mixed bag. And Jesus is very clear in this parable that as we go through history and are slowly dragged to the shore, that the net of the kingdom will be filled with all kinds of fish, both good and bad. We therefore need to be aware of this and to expect it, and to expect a mixed group of people in the church generally and in our church. But our role in this is not to judge. Because the second element of the process is that it is God, not us, who does the judging. When the time comes for sorting, for judgment, it will not be done, nor should it be done, by us. Now, when I was writing this sermon, I was about to say what a comforting thought that is, that it will be a true and perfect God who will be doing the judging, rather than the imperfect people around us. However, if I'm honest, and I I did think again, and I thought, do you know what? Maybe I'd I'd prefer to be judged by the other people around me rather than by God, because I think I can probably put on a good Christian act which might fool them, whereas unfortunately I know God sees me for who I really am, and there is no fooling him. And I'll come back to that thought in a minute. But the point I wanted to make now is that the role of the judge is not for us. The picture that Jesus is painting here is that the church in its broadest sense is one with a very large front door where just about everyone can come in through it. It's a little bit like the Labour Party today looking for votes for its new leader. Anyone can join. Our role, then, is to welcome, to embrace, and to encourage everyone and anyone who comes, and to give them the best chance to thrive and to hear 
and to respond to the words and love of Jesus. Do I do that? Or do I tend to keep away sometimes from those who are a little bit different to me or a bit hard to deal with? Or is there someone here who I don't respect or who I've judged in some way? See, if my answer or if your answer to any of those questions is yes, then I think we need to look at ourselves clearly and honestly and identify those people we we judge in some way, either by avoiding or by um, not speaking to them or by confronting them. And we need to change what happens in our hearts. Because if we can do that, we will help build a church that is more like the character of Jesus, where more people will thrive and find his love and his acceptance. Finally, then, I'd like to consider the catch itself and really the impact of the sorting on the fish, us, who are inside it. Verse 49 and 50 says, The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, this is a very hard verse uh, for us to hear, I think, with modern Western ears. We probably find it very hard to get past all the gnashing and weeping and grinding. But I think to the people of the time, this verse said something somewhat more positive than we hear. I think it says that there is a beautiful, pure, and righteous kingdom to come. You see, without the sorting, without the removal of evil, there cannot be a heaven, a just and fair society. And if there is no heaven, then we really don't have anything to hope for to look forward to. The seven parables in this section are are all about just how much you and I want to be part of the kingdom that Jesus is building. And this is shown by how we then respond to him as a person and to his teaching. Jesus has made clear already that as his kingdom begins to grow on earth, and of course the church is the major part of this, it will remain imperfect with both good and bad fish caught up in the net. But at some point, that net is going to be dragged to shore where God is preparing a wonderful and perfect home for us to which we are all invited and to which through his grace, all of us can go. And that is the wonderful news of the gospel. But the inevitable consequence of that, of creating a place with no evil, is that the bad has to be removed. Now, remember this is a parable. It's not an allegory, and therefore we should not look, therefore we should look to the main point Jesus is trying to make, rather than analyze every single element of it. And the main point Jesus is making is that unlike the parable of the sower, where Jesus is is really challenging people about the response they make now to his word, this parable is speaking to his disciples, to his followers, to us, as to, to whether we have the perseverance to follow him all the way until that final day. Without doubt, our salvation is an unearned gift from God. We don't deserve it. We don't pay for it. He has simply poured out his love and his grace upon us. But this 
Jesus is reminding us, is not the end of the story. Because once saved, once we have received and accepted that, he calls us to lead lives of purity and and to continually grow and strive to be closer and closer to him. This parable reminds us that ultimately we must be righteous if we want to live with the righteous one. There are no shortcuts. Within the church, we will always find good and bad, real and unreal. And although Jesus has told us in the parable of the weeds, again earlier in this chapter, that we're not to expect a pure world or a pure church on earth and not to make our judgment now, the day will come when God will make the final separation. It's not yet. It will be when the net of his kingdom is drawn to the shore. And it will be God who does the sorting then, not us now. And whilst the thought of being sorted, being judged by God, may be intimidating, may be frightening, the good news is that we do not need to be afraid because we have already been saved by God. It's just that having been saved, Jesus is now challenging us to push on, to persevere, and to lead lives that are ever closer to him. We therefore need to examine ourselves honestly and truthfully. And and where there are things that we need to stop doing because they pull us away from a relationship with God, then we should ask for his help to stop doing them. Or where there are things that we should start doing because they would help us walk closer to God, then we should look for his help to help us start doing them. Now, some of these things may be things we've already discussed today. Do we need to forgive someone? Do we need to stop judging others? Could we be bolder in who we speak to? Do we need to pray more? For each of us, there will be different things. But for each of us, there will be some things. And I think the challenge for me, and maybe for us, to go from here today, is we should try and seek God and ask him, what are those things? And so I would like to conclude with just three short questions. A question on how we look at our own church. Do we see do we see this church as a private home for people like us? Or a dragnet welcoming all comers of all types? And if it's the latter, then can we ask ourselves, is there one thing I can do to invite and welcome someone else to our church? It may mean praying. It may mean just starting a conversation with someone we see regularly but have never spoken to. It may be looking forward to the 4th of October and praying through who we could invite to that. It could be any number of things, but I think it is a question worth asking. Secondly, I think there's a question of how we approach those people who are already with us. Do we keep away from some or judge some who are different or challenging? Or do we try and embrace everyone? And again, a question. Is there one thing I can do today that would heal or build a relationship with somebody else? And finally then, a question about our relationship with God. And am I doing all I can to live a life that is pleasing to a righteous God? Or is there one thing I can do this week that will bring me a little bit closer to him. Amen.